welcome to Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We're Carly and Zach, and we're so glad you're here with us today. Hey, just dropping in to say we're now on Patreon. If you want to support the project, head on over to patreon.com slash legallistening, where you can unlock some fun bonus content with me, Zach, and some special guests. Thanks so much for all your support. So today on the podcast, we're doing some more employment law, which I love, and I know Zach does too, so we're very excited. And we're bringing you Farber and Royal Trust Company, which is a Supreme Court of Canada decision about constructive dismissal. So Zach, what do we know about this one? So I guess I want to throw this out. I love employment law cases, and I regret not taking personal employment in law school because it's what I want to do in practice. But anyways... So we discussed constructive dismissal, and a very brief primer on constructive dismissal is, Carly can correct me if I'm wrong because I didn't take it, but constructive dismissal is when you start in one job, and what your management and and, um, higher-ups do is they actually change what the nature of your job is, and then you get terminated as a result. And then you make a claim for constructive dismissal by saying, hey, look, I started doing X, they made me do Y, that's not what I agreed to when I signed the contract or the employment agreement. And now I've launched a claim. That's about right, right? Yeah. So that you, they don't have to actually specifically terminate you, though. It's like they right. they have acted in a way in which your the nature of your employment has changed in such that they no longer wish to be bound by the contract, and therefore you That's what yeah it is. you can consider yourself because if they terminated you, you're terminated. It's if you can consider yourself constructively dismissed because they have so changed your job. Right. So like they've changed. There it is. Yeah. In Farber, what happens is, you know, he's sort of um, a restructuring happens. So he's in charge of all these things and then they undergo this restructuring. And then all of a sudden he's, you know, very much demoted and he makes less money and his job is less important or what have you. And so he considers himself constructively dismissed because the nature of his work has changed so significantly. So this isn't... uh, You know, the case on constructive dismissal is um, usually cited as Potter and the Legal Aid Society of New Brunswick, which we have released. But but Farber is still really good. It has lots of very helpful um, language. And it's interesting because it's uh, it's a civil law case, but they sort of take the concepts of constructive dismissal and graft them into the civil law. So it's a neat sort of confluence of laws by jural decision. Uh, and honestly, the funniest part of all these decisions to me as like a model millennial, as in that I'm born in the middle of the millennial period, means that like it's hilarious to me how many things people used to get at their jobs. Like, oh, yeah, the- no, it's, in- it's incredible. <laughs> incredible. We're talking more than just benefits, too. Oh, like, yeah. Benefits are great, but like expanded benefits, like. Oh, yeah. Eyeball care. Oh, yeah. And stock options. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, And, like, a company car. It's just, it's insane to read some of this stuff. Like, as me, I'm the very, like, I, I'm on that threshold. Yeah, you're the end. Like, yeah. Not a millennial. Yeah. Or, like, a, is it, like, Gen X? Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I don't, okay, sure. Zillennial. That's a fun one that I've seen on TikTok. You're a zillennial. But anyways, <laughs> it's... It's, it's crazy yeah. what people used to be able to get when they used to work. No wonder my parents could afford to buy a house. Yeah, no, it, it, it is actually. And I mean, I know this is slightly off topic for the nature of the decision. And I'm not sort of like belittling what happened to Farberg because it was obviously very serious and upsetting. But it, I was reading it and I was just like, he got what for doing what? I was like, that's not how jobs work anymore. It was it was blowing my mind the amount of things that used to be available to like regular people. But anyway, that's like... 
a very, you know, a different conversation for another day in another podcast. But it is always the thing that uh, I sort of, um, that sticks out to me the most with a lot of these constructive dismissal, especially since Potter, you know, that was constructive dismissal, but that was, you know, the head of a legal aid system for an entire province who his job was so important. It's had its own act. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Farber is much more of like a regular person who's going through this process. So, uh, yeah, yeah. it it reminds me of Bardell, right? Bardell and Globe and Mail. Yeah. Kind of the same thing. He was I don't remember exactly what his job, but he was like a newspaper editor or something like that. Right. Neither here nor there. But it's kind of nice to see some of these employment law cases that are a little bit more, I don't know, grounded closer to what the regular person would have not that potter isn't grounded but not everyone's going to have a similar job with the head of a legal aid society for an entire province yeah right there's only like 10 of those jobs yes exactly realistically <laughs> no this one's a very good one i think uh you know it's not obviously potter is sort of the the test the official test in terms of constructive dismissal but farber's really helpful if you want to get a handle on sort of facts that are more rooted into most people's realities um, and to understand how constructive dismissal can work, specifically in a restructuring context, it can be very helpful for that because this was a restructuring. It wasn't sort of like, I'm just demoting you or moving you to another job. It was a wholesale corporate restructuring on sort of how they paid people and where people were assigned and stuff. So I'd say um, in terms of the law, it's still helpful. It obviously still has a lot of helpful stuff. It's not the most recent one, but in terms of the facts, it can be a very helpful case to read. Uh, just because it gives you lots of good facts to demonstrate constructive dismissal sort of in a very real way with a, you know people who have sort of regular jobs. Um, very good regular jobs, but like regular jobs. Uh, and it's good, it's good on the facts, I think, especially if you're interested in constructive dismissal and personal employment. So we'll leave this one to you guys. We hope you enjoy, and it's definitely a fun listen. Farber and Royal Trust Company. Supreme Court of Canada. Hearing and Judgment, November 28, 1996. Reasons Delivered, March 27, 1997. On Appeal from the Court of Appeal for Quebec. English version of the Judgment of the Court delivered by Justice Gauthier. Following the hearing of this case, the appeal was allowed from the bench with reasons to follow. These are those reasons. This appeal concerns constructive dismissal and the consequent damages. More specifically, the issue is whether the unilateral changes made by the respondent to the appellant's employment contract amounted to constructive dismissal. A collateral issue is whether subsequent events were relevant and admissible in evidence. Part 1. Facts The appellant began working for the Respondent Royal Trust Company in November 1966 as a real estate agent. Because of his excellent work for the respondent, he was promoted a number of times over the years. Real estate sales manager at the Chomedé branch, 1972. Transfer to the branch in Dollar au Homont, herein referred to as Dollar, formerly called the Roxborough branch, in 1973. Residential sales manager for the Montreal region, then assistant regional sales manager, 1976. Regional sales manager for Metro Montreal West, 1979. And regional manager for Western Quebec, 1982. The appellant was an excellent employee who was respected and appreciated by both his employer and the business community in which he worked. As regional manager for Western Quebec, the appellant supervised and administered 21 offices employing some 400 real estate agents and 35 secretaries. In 1983, 
the appellant's region generated a gross income of more than $16 million. The appellant's remuneration as regional manager was made up of a guaranteed base salary, commissions, and benefits. In 1983, the appellant received $48,820 as his base salary and $88,405 in commission for a total of $137,207.20. With benefits, the appellant earned $150,000 that year. On June 4, 1984, the appellant was informed by his immediate supervisor that as part of a major restructuring, the company had decided to eliminate 11 of the 12 regional manager positions across the country, including the appellants. To replace his eliminated position, the respondent offered the appellant's financial compensation and the manager's position at the Dola branch. The financial compensation being offered included the following. First, $40,000 as a reorientation allowance payable within two years, and second, an 8.75% override commission on the net commissions of the real estate agents at the Dollard branch. By comparison, the respondents' branch managers usually received an override commission of 5.75%. However, that rate was to apply only for the remainder of 1984 and 1985. Starting in 1986, the appellant's override commission was to decrease to the usual rate of 5.75%. The offer also provided that starting in 1985, the commissions of real estate agents who were below the minimum standard set by the respondent would not be included in the calculation. The appellant was not offered any guaranteed base salary as a manager of the Dollar branch. His income was to be made only of commissions. Finally, the offer provided that the appellant would receive a lump sum of $48,000, which represented the commissions he had earned as regional manager for Western Quebec in the first six months of 1984 the exact value of which was not yet known at the time. The Dolao branch was one of the most problematic and least profitable in the province. It was not meeting the sales targets set by the respondent and there was even some question of closing it. In 1983, the branch had 22 real estate agents whose sales amounted to only $606,532. Moreover, four of those suggested agents were new recruits which suggested that they were unlikely to reach the minimum sales standard set by the respondent for another three years. The appellant was aware of this since the branch was part of the western Quebec region he was managing at the time. The appellant considered the respondent's offer unacceptable. To begin with, the position was one he had held eight years earlier and from which he had been promoted. As well, he was insulted by the fact that he was being asked to manage a branch experiencing problems. Finally, he estimated that his income would be cut in half if he accepted the respondent's offer. He therefore initiated discussions with the respondent, seeking either to be appointed manager of a more profitable branch or to obtain a guaranteed base salary for the following three years. The respondent refused to change its offer in any way. It told the appellant that he had to assume his new duties on July 6, 1984, where it would consider that he had resigned. The appellant did not go to the Dola branch on the date in question. The appellant sued the respondent for damages on the ground that he had been constructively dismissed. On August 11, 1989, the Superior Court dismissed his action. The appellant appealed the decision, and on May 29, 1995, the majority of the Court of Appeal dismissed the appeal. Appeal Justice Fish, in dissent, would have allowed the appeal. Part 2. Judgments Below. Superior Court, District of Montreal, August 11, 1989.
Based on a comparative analysis of the appellant's former position and the one offered to him, Justice Flynn concluded that the respondent's offer was reasonable and adequate in terms of both remuneration and the prestige associated with the position offered. Justice Flynn compared the income the appellant would have earned if he had remained regional manager with the income he would have earned if he had accepted the offer. For this purpose, he decided to admit in evidence the actual sales figures of the Dola branch and the Western Quebec region after June 1984. The purpose of that evidence was to show what the appellant would actually have earned had he accepted the position in Dola and what he would actually have earned had he remained regional manager. Of course, the figures that the respondent adduced in evidence were not known at the time of the offer. Justice Flynn dismissed the appellant's objection to the admissibility of the evidence on the ground that it was relevant in assessing the reasonableness of the offer. He added that it was for the appellant to prove that any projections made by the employer when preparing its offer were based on unrealistic or even unreasonable assumptions that could have been confirmed only by circumstances that could not reasonably be anticipated in the market. After comparing the figures, he concluded that the appellant's income would not have fallen as a result of his change of position, and he stated the following at page 14 through 15. Quote, the plaintiff has not adduced any evidence that would suggest to the court that exceptional circumstances he could not reasonably have foreseen accounted for the concrete results reported by his employer. Nor has he been able to convince the court that his employer was far too optimistic when it prepared the new financial terms for the manager's position in Dollar and that it has been proved right only by chance, end quote. As regards to the prestige associated with the position offered, Justice Flynn acknowledged that the Dollar branch was one of the respondents most problematic. However, he noted that the appellant was offered the position first because it was the only branch without a manager, and second because the respondent felt that the appellant had the skills needed to get the branch back on its feet. He added that it could not be concluded from the evidence that the respondent had deliberately made the appellant an unacceptable offer to induce him to resign. Justice Flynn noted the following at page 19. Quote, the court believes that a more objective consideration of what was being proposed to him, given the fairly long period he had for doing so, ought to have led the appellant to realize that his employer still wanted him and that the offer being made to him was reasonable, end quote. For these reasons, he dismissed the appellant's action. Court of Appeal Appeal Justice Mayo Appeal Justice Mayo felt that the trial judge had not erred in admitting the post-June 1984 and 1985 sales figures as evidence. In her view, it was the best way to show that the respondent was acting in good faith and that its offer was reasonable. She added that this was not unfair to the appellant because he had been given an opportunity to challenge the validity of the respondent's figures. She concluded that the appellant had not shown that, in finding that the appellant had not been constructively dismissed, the trial judge had made a palpable error in his assessment of the facts, the testimony, or the evidence. She noted that it would be contrary to the rulings of the Supreme Court to review and reconsider the evidence adduced at trial. Her view was, therefore, that the appeal should be dismissed. Appeal Justice Chamberlain Appeal Justice Chamberlain agreed with what Appeal Justice Fish had to say about the state of Quebec law on constructive dismissal. However, he concurred with Appeal Justice Mayo on the outcome of the appeal. He concluded that the trial judge had not made a palpable error in deciding the offer was reasonable and that in the absence of such an error, the Court of Appeal should not intervene. On the question of whether the sales figures after June 1984 were admissible in evidence, he found that the trial judge had correctly admitted them. Appeal Justice Fish, dissenting. 
Appeal Justice Fish first noted that if the Court of Appeal disagreed with the conclusions drawn by the trial judge from the evidence, it had a duty to intervene in order to substitute its own view for that of the trial judge. Appeal Justice Fish felt that the trial judge had erred in admitting ex post facto evidence, that is, the sales figures after June 1984, because that evidence was not relevant. He then stated that the doctrine of constructive dismissal, a creature of the common law, has become part of the civil law. After reviewing the relevant cases, he concluded that constructive dismissal can take one of two forms, which he described as follows at page 6-7 to seven of the full text. Quote, the first relates to a reassignment offered in bad faith by the employer in the hope or expectation that the employee will feel bound to refuse. The second occurs where the employer, even without malice or oblique motive, reassigns the employee to new duties involving such a disparity in status, advantages, duties, and modalities as to constitute substantially new conditions of employment, end quote. Appeal Justice Fish noted that the trial judge had analyzed the offer of employment made to the appellant in light of the ex post facto evidence, which he considered an error. In his view, the trial judge should have asked whether, based on the information available at the time of the offer, the appellant was entitled to consider that his employment contract had been unilaterally reciliated by the respondent, not whether the offer would have turned out to be reasonable for the appellant because of what subsequently occurred. On the basis of the facts accepted in evidence by the trial judge, Appeal Justice Fish concluded that the appellant had been constructively dismissed under the second branch of that doctrine. He would therefore have allowed the appeal, set aside the judgment of the Superior Court, and ordered the respondent to pay the equivalent of one year's remuneration in lieu of notice, the whole with interest and additional indemnities. Appeal Justice Fish set the value of that remuneration in lieu of notice at $109,144, $50,088 for the 1984 guaranteed base salary of a regional manager, $46,059 for commissions, based on the average of the appellant's commissions in 1982 and 1983, and $13,000 for benefits. Part 3. Issue. The issue is whether the appellant was constructively dismissed, and if so, what damages he should be awarded. Part 4. Analysis. Subpart A. Constructive Dismissal I will begin by recalling a few principles. In Quebec, employment contracts are governed by the civil law, including the provisions of the Civil Code. Since all the facts of this case occurred before the new Civil Code of Quebec, 1991, came into force, the situation is governed by the Civil Code of Lower Canada. However, the Civil Code of Quebec does not seem to have changed the law applicable in this manner. Concept of Constructive Dismissal in the Civil Law According to Article 1670 CCLC, general contractual principles are applicable to employment contracts. Under Article 1022 CCLC, contracts are binding on the parties thereto. They must fulfill their commitments. The parties cannot unilaterally change the obligations they have incurred under the contract. This was noted by Justice Baudouin in Les Obligations, quote, nor can the parties, absent an agreement to this effect, change the terms of their contract or the manner in which it is to be performed. The contract's binding force means that they are bound not only over a period of time, but also with regard to the content of what they have undertaken." End quote. In the context of an indeterminate employment contract, one party can reciliate the contract unilaterally. The reciliation is considered a dismissal if it originates with the employer and a resignation if it originates with the employee. 
If an employer dismisses an employee without cause, the employer must give the employee reasonable notice that the contract is about to be terminated or compensation in lieu thereof. Where an employer decides unilaterally to make substantial changes to the essential terms of an employee's contract of employment, and the employee does not agree to the changes and leaves his or her job, the employee has not resigned, but has been dismissed. Since the employer has not formally dismissed the employee, this is referred to as constructive dismissal. By unilaterally seeking to make substantial changes to the essential terms of the employment contract, the employer is ceasing to meet its obligations and is therefore terminating the contract. The employee can then treat the contract as reciliated for breach and can leave. In such circumstances, the employee is entitled to compensation in lieu of notice and, where appropriate, damages. On the other hand, an employer can make any changes to an employee's position that are allowed by the contract inter alia as part of the employer's managerial authority. Such changes to the employee's position will not be changes to the employment contract, but rather applications thereof. The extent of the employer's discretion to make changes will depend on what the parties agreed when they entered into the contract. R.P. Gagnon made the following comment on this point in Le Droit de Travail de Québec. Quote, Moreover, to what extent can the employer change the nature of the employee's work or the employee's duties and responsibilities? This issue is increasingly important inter alia because it is often an essential consideration for employees in their employment that they are able to do the job for which they were hired, given both the satisfaction they legitimately wish to derive from it and their concern to maintain and develop their qualifications and skills in their field of work. The answer takes into account the form of and circumstances surrounding the hiring of the employee and thus how much discretion the employer explicitly or implicitly has to exercise managerial authority in this regard. End quote. To reach the conclusion that an employee has been constructively dismissed, the court must therefore determine whether the unilateral changes imposed by the employer substantially altered the essential terms of the employee's contract of employment. For this purpose, the judge must ask whether, at the time the offer was made, a reasonable person in the same situation as the employee would have felt that the essential terms of the employment contract were being substantially changed. The fact that the employee may have been prepared to accept some of the changes is not conclusive, because there might be other reasons for the employee's willingness to accept less than what he or she is entitled to have. Moreover, for the employment contract to be reciliated, it is not necessary for the employer to have intended to force the employee to leave his or her employment, or to have been acting in bad faith when making substantial changes to the contract's essential terms. However, if the employer was acting in bad faith, this would have an impact on the damages awarded to the employee. In the case at Barr, there is no question of bad faith by the respondent, which was acting in good faith in reorganizing its hierarchical structure. Thus, the only damages in issue are those that would be awarded in lieu of notice. French civil law has adopted similar solutions. The Court of Cassation stated the following, quote, Whereas the employer cannot substantially change an individual contract of employment without the employee's consent, and whereas the employer must either maintain the contractually agreed terms or draw conclusions from the refusal of the person concerned. End quote. In Droit de Travail, Justice Pellisset stated the following quote, When the employer has made a unilateral decision to substantially change the employment contract, the employee can, rather than continuing to work while voicing his or her refusal to accept the employer's changes, take the initiative by ceasing to work. End quote. 
If the employee simply stops working under the new terms imposed by the employer, the breakdown of the employment relationship will be considered a dismissal. The judge will apply all the substantive rules applicable to dismissals. The employer will owe severance pay, compensation in lieu of notice, and possibly compensation for dismissal without real and serious cause. At page 492 and 664, they also provided a few examples of changes that are substantial enough to amount to dismissal. Quote, according to the general rule, any change in the salary calculation method or reduction in salary is considered a substantial change in the contract. If the employee refuses to accept such a change, the result is dismissal, end quote. Thus, a demotion combined with a pay cut is a substantial change to the employment contract that may be considered a dismissal. Before going to examine how the courts have applied these principles, I should pause to discuss a point raised by the statement of Appeal Justice Fish in the Court of Appeal, with which Appeal Justice Chamberlain concurred, that the doctrine of constructive dismissal, a creature of the common law, has become part of the civil law. In 1984, in Levine and Sibek Incorporated, Justice Henen said at page 28 that the common law rule concerning constructive dismissal has been adopted by Quebec civil law. Quote, It is a well-established principle in the law of contract of personal services under the common law that actions of the employer in reducing the functions and salary of an employee may be held to be equivalent to a constructive dismissal. And when the employee resigns in these circumstances, he will be entitled to damages. The breach of the contract in these cases is held to have been committed by the employer, and it is this breach which allows a court to condemn the employer to damages. Caution must be exercised in adopting unreservedly common law concepts of contract into cases arising under the civil law, except where there is useful necessity and authoritative precedent. However, in the case of lease and hire of personal services, in Quebec, the doctrine of constructive dismissal has been recognized." End quote. In support of this statement, Justice Henin relied on the decision of the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council in Montreal Public Service Company in Champagne. In that case, which originated in Quebec, an employee had left his employer after the employer had unilaterally changed his duties. The employee then sued his employer for damages. The Judicial Committee of the Privy Council reached the following conclusion at page 52. Quote, Their lordships therefore think that the company by their action in altering powers of the respondent and the duties which he had contracted to perform, committed a breach of this contract, entitling the respondent to assert that the contract was at an end, and justifying him in maintaining the suit for damages in which he had succeeded." End quote. The Judicial Committee was cryptic about the legal basis for this statement. However, it is clear that the statement is fully consistent with the civil law, and it must not be seen as expressing any intention by the Judicial Committee to depart from that law. As this court has noted on many occasions, the civil law is a complete system in itself. Care must be taken not to adopt principles from other legal systems. Thus, for a legal principle to be applicable in the civil law, it must above all be justified within the system itself. That being said, it may nevertheless be worthwhile from a comparative point of view to consider how other legal systems have resolved the same issue. That analysis must not, however, lead to the unquestioning adoption of legal rules from other systems. In L'Interpretation de Civil Code Québécois par le Cour suprême du Canada, Professor Baudouin, now a Quebec Civil Court of Appeal judge, stated the following, quote, Reference to foreign precedents is not wrong in itself. To say that it is would be to deny that a comparative law has any value. 
However, it can be dangerous when it is done at the expense of local sources or sources from similar systems, and when it has the effect of substituting the earlier dicta of a judge or court for an effort by the court hearing the case to understand and make sense of the written law." End quote. In addition, if the rules of the two systems are similar, precedents may be of some relevance. Although they are not binding, the fact that they apply similar or identical principles may be useful for the purpose of explanation and illustration. This is true, inter alia, in constructive dismissal cases, in which, as will be seen, the courts have adopted similar solutions based on very similar principles and circumstances. It is therefore worthwhile to consider decisions from both legal systems to find illustrations of how the courts have applied the constructive dismissal concept. Situation in the Canadian Common Law Provinces In cases of constructive dismissal, the courts in the Common Law Provinces have applied the general principle that where one party to a contract demonstrates an intention no longer to be bound by it, that party is committing a fundamental breach of the contract that results in its termination. The leading case on this question is an English decision in Re Ruble Bronze and Metal Company, in which the following was stated, quote, But if a claim for wrongful dismissal be founded on repudiation by the master, then I think that the general and recognized rules which apply in the case of ordinary contracts should also apply in the case of a master and servant. It has been authoritatively stated that the question to be asked in cases of alleged reputation is whether the acts and conduct of the party evince an intention no longer to be bound by the contract. The doctrine of repudiation must of course be applied in a just and reasonable manner. A dispute as to one or several minor provisions in an elaborate contract or a refusal to act upon what is subsequently held to be the proper interpretation of such provisions should not, as a rule, be deemed to amount to repudiation. But, a deliberate breach of a single provision of a contract may, under special circumstances, and particularly if the provision be important, amount to repudiation of the whole bargain." End quote. Thus, it has been established in a number of Canadian common law decisions that where an employer unilaterally makes a fundamental or substantial change to an employee's contract of employment, a change that violates the contract's terms, the employer is committing a fundamental breach of the contract that results in its termination and entitles the employee to consider himself or herself constructively dismissed. The employee can then claim damages from the employer in lieu of reasonable notice. In an article entitled Constructive Dismissal in Work, Unemployment, and Justice, Justice N. W. Shostobodov of the Saskatchewan Court of Appeal defined the concept of constructive dismissal as follows. Quote, a constructive dismissal occurs when an employer makes a unilateral and fundamental change to a term or condition of an employment contract without providing reasonable notice of that change to the employee. Such action amounts to a repudiation of the contract of employment by the employer, whether or not he intended to continue the employment relationship. Therefore, the employee can treat the contract as wrongfully terminated and resign which, in turn, gives rise to an obligation on the employer's part to provide damages in lieu of reasonable notice. The common law rule is therefore similar to that applicable in Quebec civil law when it comes to the concept of constructive dismissal. Thus, although decisions from the common law provinces are not authoritative, it may be helpful to refer to them to see what types of changes the courts have considered fundamental changes to an employment contract resulting in the termination of that contract. However, each constructive dismissal case must be decided on its own facts since the specific features of each employment contract in each situation 
must be taken into account to determine whether the essential terms of the contract have been substantially changed. In a number of decisions in both Quebec and the common law provinces, it has been held that a demotion, which generally means less prestige and status, is a substantial change to the essential terms of an employment contract that warrants a finding that the employee has been constructively dismissed. In some decisions, it has been held that a unilateral change to the method of calculating an employee's remuneration justifies the same finding. Other decisions have found that a significant reduction in an employee's income by an employer amounts to constructive dismissal. Application of the Law to the Facts It is clear that the change the respondent unilaterally imposed on the appellant through its June 1984 offer substantially altered the essential terms of the employment contract. At the time the offer was made, any reasonable person in the same situation as the appellant would have come to that conclusion. To begin with, the change involved a significant event, even a serious demotion, for the appellant. He was being offered the manager's position at a single branch in Dollar, which was a position he had held eight years earlier before being promoted four times. As regional manager for Western Quebec, the appellant supervised and administered 21 branches, 17 branch managers, 400 real estate agents, and 35 secretaries. The gross income generated by that region was more than $16 million. As just the manager of the Dollar branch, the appellant would have been responsible for supervising only 22 real estate agents and two secretaries. Moreover, the sales of that branch amounted to less than $700,000. The appellant's responsibilities were therefore being drastically cut, resulting in a considerable loss of status and prestige. As well, the Dollar branch was one of the respondents least profitable, one of the weakest links in the chain, as the trial judge put it. It was the only branch in the western Quebec region that was not meeting the targets set by the company, and there was even some question of closing it. Asking the appellant to manage that branch undermined his prestige and status all the more. In addition, the appellant's salary terms were considerably altered by the change imposed by the respondent. As regional manager for western Quebec, the appellant's remuneration was made up of a guaranteed base salary, commissions, and benefits. As manager of the Dollar branch, he would have received no guaranteed base salary, his income would have been limited to commissions. While the value of a guaranteed base salary is known and can be relied on, the same is not true of an income limited to commissions. The type of remuneration can fluctuate greatly depending on market conditions, and, as already noted, those conditions were inauspicious to say the least for the Dollar branch. The unilateral change was extremely detrimental to the appellant's financial security. The respondent argued that the appellant was being offered $40,000 over two years and another $48,000, which it considered a guaranteed base salary for 1984 and 1985. I cannot accept this argument. As the trial judge found, the $48,000 was for commissions the appellant had already earned as regional manager during the first six months of 1984. It is true that it was a lump sum since the final sales figures for the region were not yet known when the offer was made. It turned out that the commissions the appellant had actually earned during the first half of 1984 amounted to slightly less than $48,000. Neither that small extra amount nor the $40,000 reorientation allowance could take the place of a guaranteed salary. While he was asked to manage the Dollar branch, the appellant estimated that his salary would be cut in half if he accepted the offer. At trial, the respondent tried to prove that its offer did not result in such change to the salary terms of the appellant's employment contract 
by adducing evidence of what had occurred at subsequent to the offer, namely the actual sales figures for the Dollard branch and the Western Quebec region after June 1984. Since the Dollard branch's sales were markedly higher than what the appellant had anticipated, the respondent sought to use the figures to show that if the appellant had agreed to manage the branch, he would have in fact earned more than if he had remained regional manager. The appellant objected to the admission of that ex post facto evidence. Ex post facto evidence is admissible only if relevant to the case. In Seminary Quebec Cartier de Québec, Justice Leray Dubay applied precisely this principle when reviewing an arbitrator's decision on an employee's dismissal grievance. Relevance is determined on the basis of what must be proved in an action. In the case at bar, the court had to determine whether the respondent's offer substantially changed the essential terms of the appellant's employment contract. However, since the appellant had to decide whether this was the case at the time he received the offer, the court had to revert to that time to determine whether a reasonable person in the same situation as the appellant would have considered that the offer substantially changed the essential terms of the employment contract. Thus, what is relevant is what was known by the appellant at the time of the offer and what ought to have been foreseen by a reasonable person in the same situation. Evidence of events that occurred ex post facto is not relevant unless the sales figures achieved subsequent to the offer could reasonably have been foreseen at the time of the offer. In the instant case, it is clear that subsequent sales figures could not reasonably have been foreseen. It was proved that the Dollar branch was in an extremely precarious financial position at the time the offer was made. There was even some question of closing it because its sales were below the minimum set by the respondent. Moreover, when the appellant received the offer, he calculated his projected earnings using documents prepared by the respondent and told the respondent of his projections. The respondent never disputed or even commented on them. Nor is there any evidence in the record that the respondent foresaw that sales at the Dollar branch would increase significantly over the following months. Rather, the evidence shows that the respondent itself anticipated that sales at the Dollar branch would not increase in 1984. An operating report dated May 1984 shows that the respondent expected sales at the branch to fall in 1984. The appellant, therefore, did not make a mistake by not foreseeing a substantial increase in sales on the Dorla branch. On the contrary, in light of the facts and evidence, he was fully justified in making the projections he made. I agree with Appeal Justice Fish's conclusion on this point. Quote, Royal Trust therefore cannot now rely on unexpectedly strong performance by the Dollar office to demonstrate that its offer, viewed years later through the prism of hindsight, looks better than it did in June 1984, in the contemporaneous light of day, end quote. Based on the mere fact that the income of the Dollar branch subsequently improved, the trial judge drew the presumption that such an improvement was reasonably foreseeable by the appellant, absent any evidence that exceptional circumstances had arisen in the meantime. In my view, this cannot be the case without other evidence connecting what subsequently happened to the information available at the time of the respondent's offer. The mere fact that an event occurs does not mean that it was foreseeable. The uncertainties of business stand in the way of such a presumption. The trial judge therefore erred in admitting the ex post facto evidence when its relevance to the case had not been established. Moreover, its admission prejudiced the appellant since in my view, and with the utmost respect, it distorted the trial judge's analysis. On the basis of the sales figures of the Dollar branch subsequent to the offer, 
the judge concluded that the respondent's offer did not substantially change the appellant's employment contract from a salary point of view. However, those figures were not known at the time of the offer and would not have been foreseen by a reasonable person. With respect, the trial judge erred in concluding that the appellant had not been constructively dismissed in the case at bar. Although he acknowledged that the appellant had been demoted, he found that it was not a factor because the appellant would have been prepared to manage a branch that was more profitable, more prestigious. However, the issue of whether there has been a demotion must be determined objectively by comparing the positions in question and their attributes. What an employee threatened with job loss is prepared to accept as the replacement position is not the yardstick of the employee's rights, although it may, depending on the circumstances, provide some indication of those rights. In this case, an objective comparison of the positions clearly shows that the appellant was being demoted, and this is simply confirmed by his refusal. Even as a compromise, the appellant would have accepted only a manager's position in a more successful branch or a guaranteed salary for three years in compensation for the demotion. The trial judge in fact acknowledged all the differences between the appellant's regional manager position and the respondent's offer. However, he said nothing about or disregarded such significant changes as the loss of a guaranteed base salary and the demotion, which are in themselves sufficient to support a finding of constructive dismissal. In reaching the conclusion that the appellant would have been well advised to accept the offer, he relied primarily on the evidence of what had occurred subsequent to the offer. With respect, he thereby strayed from the real issue, which was whether the offer substantially changed the essential terms of the employment contract. Intervention by this court is therefore warranted. Moreover, I note that I am in no way altering the trial judge's findings of fact in concluding that the respondent's offer amounted to constructive dismissal. On the contrary, I am relying on those findings to arrive at the necessary legal conclusion. As Justice Beat stated in Desgonier and Fabrique de Saint-Philippe, quote, it therefore does not entail substituting my own view of the evidence for that of the trial judge, but drawing conclusions in law based on the facts which she herself considered to have been established, end quote. Subpart B, Remuneration in Lieu of Notice. The purpose of remuneration in lieu of notice is primarily compensatory. It must above all be fair and reasonable in light of all the circumstances, while being based on the value of the former employee's previous remuneration. Appeal Justice Baudin stated the following in the Court of Appeals decision in Standard Broadcasting Corporation Limited and Stewart. Quote, the purpose of remuneration in lieu of notice is essentially compensatory. It is designed to enable the employer to reciliate the contract and find another person to fill the position that has become vacant and to provide the employee with a reasonable period of time to find work without incurring economic loss. In such cases, the courts act as arbiters and must, over and above a strict actuarial or accounting estimate, arrive at a figure that seems fair and reasonable in light of all the circumstances. However, that figure must, of course, be based on economic data, including the value of the former employee's previous remuneration." End quote. The trial judge stated that if he had found that the appellant had been constructively dismissed, he would have awarded an equivalent of one year's remuneration in lieu of notice. Although he did not have to act on his opinion, it is not unreasonable in this case, and the term of the award was not disputed in this court and was accepted by Appeal Justice Fish in the Court of Appeal, whose colleagues said nothing about it since they were not required to do so. There is accordingly no reason for this court to change it. The trial judge had also found that the appellant had earned $150,000 as regional manager in 1983, 
which is not disputed. In the case at bar, it is the only real representative figure available to determine the value of the remuneration in lieu of notice to which the appellant is entitled. Since the method used to calculate the appellant's salary was changed in 1983, previous years cannot be used. Moreover, it would be highly speculative to try to determine what the appellant would have earned as a regional manager after 1983, since he was no longer there to control the region's expenditures, which could have had a significant impact on his annual earnings. It was because of this specific situation that this court decided, in rendering judgment from the bench, that the appellant was entitled to $150,000 as one year's remuneration in lieu of notice. As for the appellant's duty to mitigate his damages, the trial judge accepted the following evidence, which shows that the appellant fulfilled his duty. Quote, after the manager of one of the branches in which the plaintiff was interested died in September of the same year, the appellant took steps to obtain the position. Since he was no longer an employee and in reliance, inter alia, on its practice of appointing managers from within its ranks, Royal Trust denied him the requested position. Subsequently, after being unemployed for a time, the plaintiff opened his own business, which had a slow, difficult start. The evidence did not show how it was doing at the time of trial. In any event, this is not relevant. It is sufficient to note that in the year after he left Royal Trust, the plaintiff's income was minimal despite his attempts to find employment that in some way correspond to his experience and talent." End quote. There is no reason to alter that conclusion. At the hearing, counsel for the respondent argued, without notice, that assuming the appellant had been in fact constructively dismissed, he should have accepted the June 1984 offer in order to mitigate the damages. According to that argument, his refusal to accept the offer justifies reducing his damages by the amount he would have earned as a manager of the Dolar branch. The argument was not made in either the Superior Court or the Court of Appeal and was not even discussed by the respondent in the factum it filed with this court. The appellant was therefore not able to respond to it adequately. This court did not have to consider it. Part 5. Disposition. For these reasons, judgment was rendered from the bench allowing the appeal setting aside the Court of Appeals judgment, allowing the appellant's action, and ordering the respondent to pay the appellant $150,000 with interest from the date of service, the additional indemnity and costs throughout. Thanks for the listen, friend. I hope you're able to enjoy that case and learn something new from it. Legal Listening is founded by Zach Battiston and Carly Lyons. It is hosted by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and you, our listeners. Executive produced by Zach Battiston, Carly Lyons, and Anthony Rademile. Audio engineering by Anthony Rademile. Graphic design by Julie Lundy. Check her out online at julielundyart.com. And music done by Matt Rademile at radandkel.com. At Legal Listening, we're always open to new ideas, suggestions, and of course, guest readers. Check us out on Twitter at Legal Listening or online at LegalListening.com. Legal Listening, where audio obiter is our thing. We'll catch you in the next case. Bye now.